Well, good morning. We are back, back in the book of, of Romans. And the title for this morning's message is Righteousness Revealed Through Faith. One commentator has said, quote, Justification is the very hinge and pillar of Christianity. An error about justification is dangerous, like a defect in a foundation. Justification by Christ is a spring of the water of life. To have the poison of corrupt doctrine cast into the spring is damnable. It was a saying of Martin Luther that after his death, the doctrine of justification would be corrupted and a dead fly would be cast into the bottle of this precious ointment. The doctrine of justification is essential. It is absolutely imperative that we have a right and proper view of justification. What it is that that God has done through Christ, what it is that that God has done through Christ in saving us from our sins. What it means, really a proper understanding of, of even imputation as we talked about last Sunday. Now as we get started, I, I come really with at least the, the first part of this, the first few minutes, um, a little bit of a correction. As you were reminded on Sunday, and I want to remind you again now, the doctrine of, of imputation means to place on one's account, whether as a charge or a credit. One more time, to place on one's account, whether as a charge or a credit. Last Sunday, as, as I, I spoke, as I preached, um, we talked about how imputation is played out in three specific ways in the scriptures during the week one of you came to me and asked me a couple questions about last Sunday and I realized I misspoke so get a sharpie cross out your notes from last Sunday in regard to where I said one thing and replace it with this as I already mentioned there's 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 three ways in which imputation plays itself out in the scriptures. First, the sin of Adam was charged to all humanity. Now, that's exactly what I said last Sunday. The sin of Adam was charged to all humanity. Romans 5.12. In Adam's sin, we all sinned. Number two, the sin of all believers was charged to Christ. The sin of all believers was charged to Christ and this is where I misspoke. I said the sin of all believers was charged, or rather, I said the sin of all humanity was charged to Christ. But no, it's the sin of, of all believers that was charged to Christ. And then third, Christ's righteousness was credited to all who believe in him. That is correct. I said that last Sunday, and that is true. Again, Christ's righteousness was credited to all who believe in him. So again, it was the second example that needed correction. The sin of all believers was charged to Christ. Now, 
I wasn't going to go into initially all that I'm going to go into now, but I, I want to, to make such a grand statement, it needs some, some unpacking, it needs some clarification. The salvation that is through Jesus Christ is, is real, and it is secure for all who believe on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And, and that's important, right? We, we need to understand that salvation is both real and secure. That is essential for us. That is important. Jesus said in, in John chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, I know the Father. And then Jesus goes on to say, And I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. He doesn't lay down his life for the goats. He doesn't lay down his life for the goats. It doesn't even say he lays down his life for the sheep and the goats. It says he lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus died providing a real and secure salvation for his sheep. Now what this demonstrates to us and reminds us is that Jesus' death was, was substitutionary. Another $10 word, it was vicarious. It was a vicarious, substitutionary atonement. He died in our place. He took our spot. Vicarious in Latin, or rather is the Latin term for substituted, or, or again, substitutionary what they mean is that, again, Jesus died in the place of all believers paying the price for their every sin, past, present, and future. Listen to Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Now, of course, it does speak about election here. It does speak about being chosen before the foundation of the world. But really, what I want to focus is the last part of verse 4. Ephesians 1, 3 and 4 is what I just read in the last part of verse 4, that we would be holy and blameless before him. When Jesus died on the cross, it had it had goals. It had it had it was going to bring about something. The child of God has been blessed to be holy and blameless. Holy and blameless. This does not refer to those who are not forgiven. This does not refer to the unbeliever. They have not been chosen to be holy and blameless. But the one who is really forgiven, to all who are truly forgiven, they will be holy and blameless. Jesus made a similar distinction in, in John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40. He says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. 
and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. I lose nothing of all that the father has given Christ. He will lose not one. There is not one that can wiggle away, not one that can escape the the grip of his grasp. There is not one that can slip out. No one will be lost, not one that is his. God's justification, his salvation is certain and it is real and it is secure. He goes on to say, Jesus, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. What a promise. What a promise. Those whom the father gives the son are eternally kept. Jude tells us that they are eternally kept. One writer says, quote, if Jesus actually stood in my place and bore my sin on the cross, as the Bible teaches, then I can never be punished for that sin. In order for Christ's atonement to truly be a substitutionary or vicarious atonement, that it must be or rather than it must actually secure a real salvation for all for whom Christ died. If the atonement only makes salvation a possibility, then it cannot be a vicarious atonement. If Christ acted as a real and true substitute for those for whom he died, then all for whom he died will be saved. To say that Christ died a vicarious death in the place of all sinners but that not all sinners will be saved is a contradiction, end quote. This does not mean that when we sin, we won't be disciplined. It doesn't mean that we don't face discipline in this life, but it does mean that we won't be judged in the next. We stand before God in Christ, holy and blameless. One more passage, and it's the idea behind Colossians chapter 1, or rather chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. Paul says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the circumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having nailed it to the cross. What did he nail to the cross? Your debt. He nailed your debt to the cross. This is what makes Jesus' words so amazing in John 19.30, right? It is finished. It is It is finished. All right, with that being cleared up, if you're not already there, turn to Romans chapter 4. 
We are, are in this section of justification by faith. Abraham is set up before us as the illustration. Follow along as I read, just to remind us where we're at. Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. What then shall I, I'm sorry, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Now, as you know, and as you can see, and as you might remember, the, you know, the, the verse that really draws our attention, that, that sort of draws us in here, that, that, is, that speaks most profoundly is really verse 3. For what the scripture, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was, it was credited to him as righteousness. Through all of this and out of all of this flow, flow, Paul instructs us in four ways. Number one, the importance of your spiritual forefather. The importance of your spiritual forefather, that's verse one. The impossibility of justification by your works. The impossibility of your just, the impossibility of justification by your works, verses two and three. Third, the implication of God crediting you with His righteousness. The implication of God crediting you with His righteousness, verses four and five. And then finally, number four, the illustration of David and how God blesses you. The illustration of David and how God blesses you. And that's verses 6 through 8. Now, we hit the first two verses or the first two points last Sunday. But by way of a reminder, let me just, let me just recap. Again, Abraham is an illustration for us in our first point. The importance of Abraham as your spiritual forefather. And as you might remember from last Sunday, Abraham lived from around 2165 to 1991 B.C. He was born in the land of Ur of the Chaldees. He was the first of the great Old Testament patriarchs whom God made a covenant with. Abraham came from a background of polytheism and, and idolatry. But at the right time, God called him to himself. Although Abraham was called to be faithful and obedient to the Lord, it was not a condition of the covenant in which God had made with him. Rather, his response in faith was a matter of God working and changing 
the heart of, of Abraham, awakening his mind, bringing his will under submission so that he would believe and receive the righteousness of God. God changed the world by first changing Abraham through justifying him by faith. That is the whole point. Abraham was justified by faith. And as we've talked about already in the weeks past, faith is a gift of God. Yet in time and space, we also practice faith. We, we apply our faith. As God changes our will, we respond in faith. That is just true. God gave us a justification that is not from ourselves. Our second point was the impossibility of justification by your works. This is verses 2 and 3, and, and this is where Paul introduces the idea of credited. Credited. Abraham believed God in verse 3, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, what's so wonderful about the passage is Paul begins with, uh, for what does the scripture say, pointing back to the book of Genesis? There should be no argument here. There should be no debate on the issue. The scriptures speak to it. The issue is settled. Faith is the necessary ingredient by which God will shower his people with righteousness. Faith is the necessary ingredient. You cannot come to Christ. You cannot be saved. You cannot have your sins forgiven. You cannot be given Christ's righteousness without faith. There is no such thing as a justification by works. And that is Paul's theme in this second point. There is no way for us to get to God by our works. There is no level of good deeds in which we could ever do that would get us to God. Now, let's, let's move into our third point, which begins really this morning's message, the implication of God crediting you with his righteousness. This is the third point of the series. Again, the implication of God crediting you with his righteousness. Now, imagine this. Imagine working all day in the hot sun and your boss coming to you at the end of the day and handing you an envelope. And he says, I have a gift for you. You open the envelope and inside the envelope is your paycheck. It's what you agreed to. No more, no less than the amount that you agreed to with your boss is inside that envelope and on that paycheck. What would you say? If he called it a gift, if he comes to you and says, I have a gift for you, a gift for you, would you be expecting something else? Would you be expecting something above and beyond whatever was due to you? Do you? By definition, a gift is something bestowed or acquitted by the recipient without its being earned. By definition, a gift isn't earned. A gift is something granted. 
Listen to Paul's words in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, or rather 4, verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what it is, what is due. The word favor is the Greek word for grace. If you work for something, how can the wage, how can your paycheck be given to you by grace as a gift? A passage would, would more directly read, and some translations, as I know some of you probably are seeing in front of you, some of your translations really say that that word favor, they translate it as, as grace. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as grace, but as what is due, or but by what is obligation. If it is a wage, it is rightfully yours. But if it is a wage and you've worked for it, it's, it's rightfully yours. That's why Paul can so simply and easily say, for the wages of sin is death. Because you earned that. We all earned that. Everyone who's ever lived outside of Jesus Christ is, has earned that. For the wages of, of sin is, is death. That only compels us to run to Christ, right? A wage is not a gift because a gift is not rightfully yours and you have not earned it. A gift is freely given and, and it's freely received. You know, turn with me real quick to the book of James. In James chapter 5, verse 4, the author here writes about the wickedness of those who withhold wages from their workers. James writes in, in James chapter 5, beginning at verse 4, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Now, this verse is supposed to well up great fear in those who are not paying their workers. Now, how do we know that? I mean, it, it, did, it does say it reached the ears of the Lord, but it says it reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. That word Sabaoth is not the word Sabbath. It's not talking about the, the Lord of rest. That word Sabaoth is the word that means armies. It's the idea of angelic armies. So it's saying the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of all creation, of, of, of the Lord who created all the angelic beings, of the Lord who created all the angelic armies who are at war with the, with the prince of evil. Owners are withholding payment that is their ethical obligation to pay those who have worked for it. There's no grace here, no gift. Similarly, it's, it's like receiving a wage for work you claim you have done, but you never did. It's fraud. The word of God lays out a principle for us. Work and wage go hand in hand. Work and wage simply go, they go hand in hand. If you work, then you should rightly receive the agreed upon wage. But if grace is shown and it is a gift, no work is required. 
No work is required. Praise God that justification is a gift. A gift from God, and there is no room for works in God's justification. He makes that clear in verse 5. Look at there with me in Romans. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. As I thought through this, uh, this, this was just such a convicting, encouraging thought. And it's just simply what it says in the passage. God justifies the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. He declares the righteous, or rather, he declares the unrighteous, righteous. He credits the unrighteous with Jesus' righteousness. The poor is now seen as, as rich. The unworthy is now seen as as worthy. There's no one that's outside of of God's ability to, to show mercy to. We would testify that because we know ourselves, right? We might not all have, have been as bad as we could have been. And we're not even, we don't even need to move into the things that we did, rather just the things that we've thought. Sometimes the anger that felt, you know, that rages within us, the, that really is a, a hatred towards someone, resulting in biblically murder, right? We know the things that we've thought. We know how, how, how ugly we were and can be. But God justifies the ungodly. Praise the Lord. Who is it that should rightly receive the praise for such grace? Who is it that should receive our praise? Where then is our boasting? Who should our boasting be directed to? As we talked about last, last Sunday, we must look for opportunities to boast about our Savior. One commentator speaking of God's imputing righteousness to believers, he says this, quote, It is called the righteousness of God in Romans chapter 1 and, verse, and chapter 3 because he is the appointer, approver, and imputer of it. It is called the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ in Second Peter 1, 1 because he wrought it out and presented it in, unto God. It is called the righteousness of faith in Romans chapter 4, verse 13, because faith is the apprehender and receiver of it. It is called man's righteousness in Job 33, verse 26, because it was paid for, I'm sorry, because it was paid for him and imputed to him. All these varied expressions refer to so many aspects of that one perfect obedience unto death 
which the Savior performed for his people. End quote. It's all about the Savior. It's all about him. All of our praise must be lifted to him. All of our boasting must be pointed toward him. Everything that we do must be for him and to him and unto him. Justification by by faith is what compelled the hymn writer Elvina M. Hall to write in 1865. And when, before the throne, I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Is that true of you this morning? Is your soul just filled with wanting to sing praises because of what you have in Christ? Is that full? Does that fill you to the fullest measure? Is it overflowing? And I know, we know that there are some here that just don't know Christ. Hear what I'm saying this morning. There is salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ. There is nowhere else to look, there is nowhere else to go. There's no reason to run. Come to him in in humility. Believe on him in faith. That he sent his son to die so that you might live. And in Christ you have his righteousness. There's no more working or no more striving. Believing on him. And resting in his grace. From all of this, Paul transitions from Abraham to David. An illustration he gives us in David and how David in like manner trusted God and was blessed. This is our fourth fourth point, the illustration of David and how God blesses you. The illustration of David and how God blesses you. Now, as I've already mentioned, again, imputation means to place on one's account whether as a charge or a credit. Simply put, and plainly put, to place on one's account. To place on on one's account. Imputation is often seen in our English Bibles as that word credited, or reckoned oftentimes in the New King James. Now just listen to this for a moment. The word here for credited, or the, the Greek word for imputation, legizomai, it is used 41 times in the New Testament. It is used 19 times in the book Romans, or in the letter to the Romans. It is used 11 times in Romans 4 alone. It is found in verses 3, 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, 10, 11, 22, 23, and 24. In verse 8, it's a little bit unique in that instead of using the word credited, it is translated take into account in the New American Standard. 
the idea of credited righteousness began in Genesis 15.6. The idea is repeated in Habakkuk 2.4, in Romans 4.9, in Romans 4.22, in Galatians 3.6, and in James 2.23. These all speak to Abraham, believing God and it being credited to him as righteousness. This isn't a doctrine that's, that's hidden. It's, it's, not, it's not something that's hard to find. In fact, it's, again, it's, it's used in the Pentateuch. It's used in the prophets. And it's used by the Apostle Paul. It's used by James. James teaches in his passage, James 2.23, that because of this credited righteousness that, that a believer has... <clears throat> He can now be called a friend of God. Prior to knowing and having faith in Christ, you are an enemy of God. But in Christ, you are a friend. The man who is justified by faith receives an unqualified acceptance before God and an unearned intimacy with him. You go from being an enemy of the Most High to a split second later, you're sitting on his lap and he's telling you the deepest parts of him that we have in the scriptures. He is our Heavenly Father. It wasn't just Abraham who enjoyed the blessing, this blessing, but it was King David as well. Paul quotes David from Psalm 32 in order to use David's words to illustrate what Abraham received through faith. And not just received through faith, but received through faith apart from works. Romans 4, 7 and 8 says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And again, that will not take into account is that word credited. King David wrote Psalm 32 just after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband Uriah. It's likely that he wrote this even after the death of his son. Psalm 32 is a psalm of repentance. I want to take a few moments to just observe the text here. So look with me at at Romans chapter 4 verses 7 and 8. Now remember that what we're looking at here is Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry that's been brought into the Greek New Testament. So again, a lot of parallelism here. In verse 7, blessed are those. In verse 8, blessed is the man. Blessed is used in contrast to the idea of cursed. 
when you see those words lawless deeds and and sins and and sin, you automatically think cursed. Someone, you know, we, we when we disobey God, we live under the, the ramifications of that disobedience. Blessed are those who obey God. Cursed are those who disobey God. That was that was just standard phraseology. That's that's just how those phrases went together. So then David says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds. Now, we didn't finish the sentence, but how do you put blessed and and lawless deeds in in the same in in the same sentence? How do you do that? The expression lawless deeds refers to violations of the law. In the most literal sense, it describes rebellion against the divine authority and the deliberate and open violation of God's commandment. Now, David could, that describes David quite well, right? And then, and then as we consider it, it describes all of us well. Next, David says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. In that same sentence, he uses another parallel phrase, have been covered. And then in the final verse, the phrase, the Lord will not take into account. All of those phrases are to work together to describe one single event that is now complete. One single event that is now complete. The justified sinner has had her sins forgiven, her sins have been covered, and the Lord will not take them into account. Praise God. This is one of the lowest times in in David's life, if not the lowest time in his life. Remember, in the Jewish mind, do you remember the Jewish mind in Abraham? How did the Jews think about Abraham, the patriarch? He was the righteous man. He was the righteous man of the Old Testament. He was so righteous that his righteousness in some way could be imputed to them, they believed. They believe that their spiritual life could have greater standing. That God would look at them more favorably because of their lineage, because of Abraham. David was not viewed in the same way. David wrote, again, after his sin, likely after the death of the child was conceived out of wedlock, likely after the child had passed away. At this point, David stopped minimizing his sin and he understood the complete absence of any personal merit before God. Whatever David thought he was before, he knew his real self. He was honest with himself and he understood who he was before a holy, majestic, all-knowing God. He recognized that he needed an imputed righteousness He needed something outside of himself that he could not provide for himself. And he also knew, I cannot look to Abraham. I need something more. 
He needed God. And what's so wonderful about David's statements that Paul records for us, or that Paul re-says, restates for us, is really found again back in the word blessed. Blessed. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. Blessed is the man whose sin has been covered. God doesn't just forgive, but he permits the forgiven to know that they are forgiven. God doesn't just forgive, but he permits for you and I to know that we've been forgiven. Why does that why is that important? Because of the joy that it produces, the joy that accompanies our salvation. Psalm 32 verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. These are David's words. He's speaking of himself. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Many are the sorrows of those who live in sin. Many of the sor- many are the sorrows of those who deny God. Many are the sorrows of those who follow their own way. Many are the sorrows of those who reject the Almighty, who reject Christ. Many are the sorrows, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Romans eight sixteen and 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. God's Spirit works within us, testifying within us who it is that is our Father. And even more than that, whose child we are. There's been a theme for the last couple of months that we remember these truths. We, I feel like we've talked about this over and over, but that we, we, we keep these things on, on, our, on, on our mind regularly. Not just rejoicing in, in the theology that those who put their faith in, in God and His only begotten Son are justified, not just that, that we have the righteousness of God and the righteousness of Christ and that God sees us as he sees Christ. But that we must moment by moment remember so that we live in the fullness of joy. It's not some theoretical truth. It's something we, we, hold, we cling tightly to. Because of what it produces in us. Because it gives us 
a high view of God. But not that he's just some transcendent being living way out there. But rather, he's a transcendent being that has given us a spirit who indwells us in here. How is it that you maintain the fullness of joy that really we see laid out for us in Scripture? Can't be dwelling upon ourselves. Can't be thinking much about us. It must be thinking much about Him. One pastor has said, justification is a mercy. Spun out of the bowl, spun out of the bowels of free grace. God does not justify us because we are worthy, but by justifying us, makes us worthy. End quote. So, brother and sister, are you worthy? You are in Christ. You are in Christ. Those are good words. Those are words that need to be shared. Those are words that we need to be reminded of and we need to be reminding one another. We are worthy, but our worthiness is not in ourselves. It's in him. It's all about God and what he has done. It's this great plan that he has, that he has devised, a plan that we would have never thought of, uh, something that is so far beyond us, so, so outside of us, but a plan that he has devised, a perfect plan that he has given us. When we were dead in our sins, God called us to himself and made us worthy through Jesus Christ. My prayer, brothers and sisters, is just that we would recite that over and over. We all acknowledge that there's some who who do better at reciting that than, than we do. Some of you are better at that than me. But we, we regularly need to be speaking to one another about the glories of Christ. The wonderful things that God has done. That is true fellowship. Well, let's, let's end thinking on those things. Let's pray. Father, we are so humbled and grateful for what Paul has has given us through your spirit. And that as you've reminded us, God, of, of the faith of Abraham and that of David, as you've shown us how these men trusted you, and we know that their faith was, and their trust was not of themselves, that too was a gift of you. Father, we left to ourselves run from you. Left to ourselves, we don't want the the things of, of you, the one true God. But Father, when you begin to work and begin to illuminate our minds to you, you change our affections. You, you cause us to love you. Father, our prayer 
Our prayer is that all in this room would come to know you in saving faith. Desire, our desire is that all whom we, we love would come to know you and believe on your Son for the forgiveness of their sins. Father, it is our desire that those who we don't know, even our enemies, would come to know you. That they would be able to be called your friend. And that we too might call them friend. Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift of salvation. We pray that the words that we heard this morning might build us up, might strengthen our faith, encourage us in daily life. And they may help us to walk in the fullness of of joy, knowing that we have been forgiven and that we've been gifted the righteousness of Christ. Father, as we depart from here this morning, may we leave again somewhat resolved to remember all that you have done for us. Father, thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.